Welcome to Grace in 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick and I'm working solo in the field today. I'm very excited about today's guest. I'll be talking to Knox Singleton, the CEO of ANOVA, the DC area's leading not-for-profit healthcare system serving over 2 million people annually with revenues of $3.3 billion in 2016 and over 16,000 employees at its five hospitals. Knox joins us to talk about the evolution of ANOVA during his years at the helm, the rapidly changing face of healthcare, and lessons he's learned in his career and life. Knox, welcome to Grace and 30. Thank you, Ed. Happy to be here. Really happy that you've given us the time to, to come visit with you. So as we talked about a little bit before, the thing I wanted to kick off and talk about is I've heard you told the story about uh, the good news, bad news story about how you got the job working here at ANOVA. So if you'd share that with us, I'd appreciate that. Sure, happy to. Um, I, uh, I was serving as the uh, director of Penn State's uh, teaching hospital in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and had been there for a number of years, and I uh, was ready for my next uh, professional step up, and, and the job of the administrator at uh, Fairfax Hospital was open. I got a call from a recruiter, and I ended up um, in the interview process and became a, a, uh, a finalist in that process. I was invited out to the Country Club of Fairfax to meet with the search committee and uh, we had a delightful evening and I was asked all the requisite questions and I was really very interested in the position because it was a great community and I was in a 300 bed hospital and Fairfax was over 600 beds so it would be a nice promotion in terms of responsibility for me. At the end of the evening, um, we said our goodbyes and the chairman of the board uh, walked me out to my car uh, in the parking lot and uh, as we approached my car, he, he put his arm around my uh, shoulder and said, well, thank you for, for being here. Uh, the committee met after we finished dinner and talked about our conversation with you and um, he said, I think I, I have some, some good news and I have some bad news for you. And I, uh, I looked at him and I said, well, um, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm uh, anxious to hear both. Uh, I said, why don't you give me the, the bad news first? And he said, uh, well, the bad news is that uh, you're not going to get the job of being the administrator of Fairfax Hospital. We were unanimous in that decision. I said, well, that is bad news because <laughs> I, I was pretty hopeful about this. Uh, wonderful opportunity and great community. He said, well, it's, it's not all bad news. He said, there's good news, too, because uh, our, um, our uh, CEO for the, for the health system is going to be retiring soon, and we'd like for you to consider uh, taking the job of being the COO and then uh, conceivably at some point thereafter when he retires you could be the CEO. Um, well I allowed is how I thought that was, uh, <laughs> that was, was indeed good news and uh, as things transpired I did, I did uh, accept the COO and as, uh, 
as event would proceed, uh, the CEO did retire and the transition was uh, successfully completed. So that was, uh, that was my first major interface with a good news, bad news. Mm -hmm. In this case, it had a happy ending. But truly good news. It, it yeah. was, it was very much and, so. And you were 35 years old at the time. I was, I was. Um, actually, I was 34 at the time this took place, and then the following year, uh, I turned 35 and the CEO transition took place. So I started the job as CEO when I was 35. So is that a young age to have that sort of position? Well, I had been the named the director of the hospital in Hershey at 30, which I think was, was by most accounts, considered young for that job. Uh, and this was also young. I, it's fair to say I, um, I was, uh, I had certain, uh, I had certain abilities to, to, to present ideas and have conversations and talk about uh, the business of healthcare, but I'm not sure that I knew very much at all about what I was doing. But my, uh, my uh, conversations largely obscured my lack of knowledge, <laughs> apparently, and, and uh, so it was a, it was a, it was a pleasant uh, outcome that, uh, yeah, a young guy taking on something he really, frankly, was not ready for. But, um, but you know, I guess there was, uh, there was a bigger plan there somewhere that was at work, and, and uh, as I say, I was pleased with the, with the whole development. So 33 years at ANOVA, you've seen a lot of change, a lot happening. Tell us about what's, what's happened and tell us about what you're proudest about. Well, I, uh, I would almost uh, characterize ANOVA's change as really um, twofold. One is tremendous growth. Uh, I remember when I first came to Fairfax County at the time, uh, the population was approximately 100,000 people. And I remember the, the uh, search committee telling me, you know, someday we'll probably have 200,000 people in this county. And of course, today we probably have a million 200,000 people and there's uh, in the Nova service areas about 3 million people. So tremendous growth um, and expansion and we had uh, about a hundred and eighty million dollar budget, and today we're we're north of three billion. So, growth is one of the characteristics. I think the second big change has been the um, the character of healthcare, um, the emergence of uh, genomic science and big data analytics have really given us the ability to look within each individual and tailor treatments and diagnoses and be able to predict uh, things that you might get in the future, not just, not just things that you currently are suffering from. And so this whole revolution of personalized medicine ANOVA's really been leading that transition, but it's science that will uh, that will transform really healthcare. And so there really were two chapters, uh, I almost say in healthcare, there's the, there's the before personalized medicine and then after personalized medicine. And, 
And so there's been a huge shift in that regard. I would say the thing that I'm, I'm most proud of really during that, during that 30 year period was how ANOVA responded to the initial HIV crisis. You probably, many people don't remember that in the early days of AIDS, it was a disease that, for which there was no cure and it, no one really knew exactly where it came from, but there was a great deal of fear and trembling that um, you might catch it uh, mm -hmm. from everything from toilet seats to eating food. And, um, and at the time, ANOVA, uh, people did not actually want to be around, a little bit like lepers in the, in the, in the Old Testament. No one wanted to be around people who who had AIDS and children who were getting it from transfusions and adults and other folks. We led the process of really creating services and inviting people of all ages with AIDS into care and into caring situations um, where many people said that is the craziest thing because everyone's going to get scared and no one will want to come and uh, have, get health care from a place where these modern day, um, modern day folks uh, with this dread disease. But obviously that uh, didn't transpire for the most part. And I'm really proud, proudest today, I would say, of all the things we've done, that we were there courageously caring for people who really had no other place to go and in many absences no real hope um, they um, hopefully they found w at ANOVA caring people who uh, would uh, would be with them in the, the darkest hour of their lives maybe of their children's lives or their their sons or daughters or parents uh, so I'm probably proudest of that of really anything we've done. Well, good for you because I, I saw a special on TV once about Magic Johnson on ESPN and about his battle. And there was this young little black girl who had been ostracized in her community. She had gotten it from her uh, addicted mom. Mm -hmm. And the, the heartbreak on that little girl's face and in her talking and all, and, and he, they, they brought him in to meet her and other people, other celebrities. But you, just, you could just see the pain in her mm -hmm. life just being completely cut off from, from everybody because everybody was scared. They didn't know what to do. So that's, that's really nice. I, I did want to talk a little bit about your healthcare challenges because things kind of got personal for you. About 15 years ago, you were diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. You look great. You're here 15 years later, so it's a testament to the system. Did that spark you and change things and how you kind of manage the team and direct the organization? Um, well, when, when somebody tells you the, the conversation was you have, uh, you have stage four lymphoma and the five-year survival for what you have is around 35 to 40 percent, uh, you, uh, you really uh, step back and start thinking about your own mortality and uh, what your existence been about or what's it going to be about. Um, and um, I think it is a life-changing influence. I've spoken uh, since then with a lot of people who've had 
serious illness to the point where their own mortality is called into serious question. And I think almost without exception, everybody in that circumstance uh, steps back and says, you know, um, uh, you know, why, why am I here? Why would God continue to keep me here? Um, and a lot of thought about what you would miss were you not to be one of those who made the survival list. And uh, as it turned out in my case, I had good doctors and uh, good health care, and um, I, uh, I, I, I survived. I had a stem cell transplant. And after about a couple years of treatment and follow-up, uh, I'll never forget the day the, the oncologist came in. He said, I, I have uh, good news. Period. <laughs> Just good news. <laughs> Uh, he said, you're much more likely to die from some other cancer than the one you've just, uh, you've just had. And I said, well, that's great news, Doc. Thanks a lot. That really lifts my spirits. Uh, but I could look really in the rearview mirror at that point and look ahead with, uh, with, uh, with a, clear, a clear vision that uh, life could, at least from a health point of view, return to normal. So let me give you a little break to do a station ID. You're listening to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We're talking to Knox Singleton, the longtime CEO of Innova, who is talking about his three plus decades at the helm and sharing some personal stories about what he's learned in his career and life. So would you say that that when you got that good prognosis, you got that good reading from the doctors, was that one of the biggest turning points in your life when you were either diagnosed or you heard that good news, or were there other moments that were even bigger seismic shifts in your life? Well, pro probably the biggest, the biggest seismic shift in my life, I think, was, was about five or six years before that when I, I accepted Christ. I fond of telling people I had been a Presbyterian for 25 years and a, and a Christian for 10 uh, with no aspersions on Presbyterians but the point being that I had been raised in a, in a church going family and had had been very active in youth groups and was a youth leader and, and uh, but I'd never really had a personal relationship with Christ and the biggest the biggest shift in my life was really when when I uh, uh, came to understand that I was never going to be successful in life uh, from the point of view of, of earning my way either to heaven or to success here in terms of relationships or my the building joy into my daily to my daily existence without without Jesus Christ. So uh, that was the biggest day in my life. Probably the second biggest day <laughs> was probably the day that I, I learned that, that I was going to survive that disease. Um, and it sort of introduced the idea at that point of really, why am I here? You know, why, why would God keep me around and what is my purpose? I had a sense of purpose before before that, I think growing out of my my uh, uh, conversion to Christianity, but 
but my sense of purpose was sort of general and diffuse. And I think uh, from a time point of view, I sort of thought that I had 50, 60 years to go, you know, I had a long time. And then secondly, uh, not much specificity about what that was to be. And I had been uh, involved with a lot of uh, a lot of community and charitable activities over the years, but I think that brought into focus that God wanted me to to sort of buckle down and focus on this whole gift, um, you know, on what His promises and what He called us to do, which was to um, love others and serve others and and uh, to give them the strength and the power and 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 not be all about trying to build ourselves up in life. And I'm not sure I ever really translated that very effectively, but at least it made a point where I knew what I should be trying to do. And I didn't have, I might not have, but today to do it. So it brought a sense of urgency and it also came to realize I might not have anybody beyond you, Ed, to talk to, to to have that opportunity to, to either love, serve, help them in some way, or to help them learn about Christ. or So uh, that was the biggest thing. Um, those two were the big days for me. So those days, I'm assuming this led you to, in some sense, start more fully integrating your faith with everything you do. It seems like in America, believers tend to go to church on Sunday and then behave very differently for the rest of the week, whether it's at work or whether it's in their family. And, you know, I told you my personal story. I did mm -hmm. this very thing in my marriage, you know, behave very differently in, inside my house than I did elsewhere. Did you start to, to find that you were more fully integrating your faith and your work? And if so, how, how did you do that? And then what sort of benefits came from that? I think that the biggest difference for me was that I came to understand that I'd been given a platform in this job, in whatever job you're in, the truth is that you're connected to people for whom you're the only representation of Christ they're gonna see that day. In my case, I was connected to 16, 17,000 people. And I think it brought a new appreciation that if I had a purpose, if I had um, how I treated people, how I tried to build, how I tried to build the commitment to love and serve others into my work life, um, as well as the rest of my life. Um, I, I'd been given this pulpit, if you will, at, at work, as well as a pulpit at home. Not to preach at people or to preach to people, but to be the kind of disciple that Christ would like to see. And that really became uh, more real and more urgent to me and more specific. I don't know that I was any more successful at living a life that represented that um, kind of um, seeing Christ through me. I don't know that I improved the outcome at all, but I felt the call and the importance and the urgency of doing that, and I believe my efforts uh, 
to try to be more um, to be more uh, obedient to that call certainly went up certain a lot. Do you feel like your faith and your relationship with Christ played a, a role in your healing? I mean, were you focused strictly on traditional medicine, or do you feel like that was really an integral part of how you how you attacked your illness? You know, I uh, I've, I've been asked, you know, what led to my what led to my recovery. Uh, I believe it was predominantly um, it was predominantly the good care that I received. I don't believe that um, I don't believe that I was really aware enough at the time to really call upon God to be the healer, the great healer that that God can be. I, I don't think I my faith was at a place where I was smart enough or informed enough or wise enough to really call on that. My best ally really were a bunch of good friends, particularly a men's group that I'd belonged to a church for 20 years. That group of men steadfastly prayed and, and supported me. Uh, so I think it's, I was one of those beneficial uh, third parties of their efforts I don't know that I that I could point to to other other uh, activities. Certainly, nothing I did I think contributed to it during that time. I had had great friends, great Christian brothers, and um, and great doctors. Um, and God was clearly directing and corralling people into an overall plan for where He wanted me to be and go and that disease uh, um, play out, but uh, I'm not sure I was smart enough to, to play much of a role in it myself. I want you to spend just a little bit of time talking about this new center you're opening up on the ExxonMobil campus, because um, there's a lot of exciting stuff you're doing there, so if you could give us a minute or two about that, and then if you feel compelled to sort of share some sort of a call to action or just share something that's on your heart with listeners, please do that as well. I, uh, I would tell you that this new Center for Personalized Health is built on that new science of genomics and the new uh, power of big data analytics. Those two things give us the ability to do two things, as I mentioned earlier. One is to, to tailor every treatment that you receive around whether it's going to, treatment is going to work for you or not. Um, the, um, the truth is that drugs only work, most drugs only work with about half the people that, that take them. If you could know in advance that this particular drug will work with you and it might not work for your neighbor or, or for me, uh, it would dramatically change the effectiveness of treatment. Second thing it, uh, that genes do is they, in my case, my mother had B-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, exactly like I did. Well, after the fact, you could look at the genes and say, you have a high-risk genetic predisposition to B-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I found my disease at stage four, where it's, as I mentioned, about 40% curable. Well, at stage one, it's about 96% curable. 
If you know it's coming and you catch it right at stage one, practically nobody would ever die of it. Yep. If you don't know it's coming, uh, then a lot of people are going to lose their lives. That's what the new center is about, is developing the care and treatment around that. And uh, I would, I believe it's a, a, it's a major new innovation that's going to revolutionize how we take care of people. In terms of uh, call to action, I would just uh, simply say I, I think the lessons I learned um, when I sort of re-examined my life and bringing that whole sense of urgency to as if you have faith, how you practice that faith, how you respond, do it on a daily basis, not on a, not on a I'll get around to it or let's wait till Sunday or next week. If you get up every morning and realize today might be the last day in your life and the person that you see right now is the person to whom you need to be loving on them and caring for them and talking to them about, about the gift of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, that, if you could remember that, uh, life will get a whole lot better and it'll be good for a long time. Thank you. You, you. you speak from experience. I do. So listen, Knox, thank you so much for joining us, giving us the time. I know you're a very busy man. And thank you for the work you're doing at the hospital. I've, I've been a patient or, and I've had my parents in there. My, my ex-wife and I have been there quite a bit with her battle with pancreatic cancer. So we appreciate this. We appreciate how you're walking out your faith uh, in your life as well. If listeners want to find out more about Innova, uh, please visit them on the web at innova.org. That's I-N-O-V-A dot org. We'll also be posting information on these resources on our Facebook, Twitter, and web pages. A replay of the show can be found at thegrayson30.com and WERA.FM websites 24 hours after airing tonight. And the show will also re-air on WERALP this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This is Ed and Knox signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, everybody, and be sure to tune into Grace. Our